Police and health authorities are trying a new tack in Northland to loosen the grip of methamphetamine on troubled communities. They're joining forces in a pilot project not to arrest users, but to offer them help to kick the pee habit that's breaking hearts and families across the region. The annual Waitangi Hikoi from the far north this year was not about treaty claims. It was all about pee, the substance that's gradually and perniciously become the drug of choice in a region that used to be known as Cannabis County. These days, pee or meth is easier to get and often cheaper than cannabis. And the result has been social chaos and crime on a level not seen before in deprived communities. The Salvation Army says families are crying out for help. They're desperate for someone to step in and fix the situation and in a sense they are asking us to step in and make it stop. And counsellors say the biggest losers in the meth game are the children. We're working with with kids and their families where they've witnessed mum being murdered. I mean, that's not uncommon for us now. I'm Lois Williams, and Insight this week looks at how the methamphetamine trade is breaking families in Taitokiro. Uh, so see, with a social worker brought me around one on um, Friday, and I said, oh, no, it's all right, she said, oh, i you one around. That's Margaret, a Whangarei grandmother in her early 40s. She's also the mother of a nine-month-old baby. She lives in a small, neatly kept house in one of the city's poorer suburbs. Her eldest daughter's been using pee for 10 years. She fell in with the wrong crowd as a teenager, her mum says, namely the Headhunters gang, and never got out. She's since had five children, and Margaret says their lives in Auckland have been chaotic. I could see the neglect with the children. The house was always filthy. The kids were always filthy. They had been the ones that go to school. Over the years, they've been moved from a number of schools. I can't even count on one hand. It's more than one hand, probably ten or more schools they've been moved around. And the abuse that they've witnessed, the gangs coming into the house, things like that. I'm going to put the girls into counselling, the two girls I've got. The kids are all being split up. Three of the other siblings have gone to the father, but it's not the father of the two grandchildren that I've got. And it was neglect in the end that triggered the children's rescue. She had left the children home alone and someone had called the police and come near three o'clock in the morning the police had picked the children up. They were five, seven, eight and ten and two. Wednesday my daughter brought two of the children up to me and she just came in here and quickly left. Margaret's story is an increasingly common one in the North. Grandparents Raising Grandchildren, an organisation that advocates for people in Marg's position, says its membership has risen by 1,800 in three years. The Trust now has 3,700 families on its books, 280 of them in Northland. And its chief executive, Kate Bundle, says more often than not, pee addiction is the reason grandparents are stepping in. More and more families are struggling with the methamphetamine epidemic that I I call it an epidemic because <laughs> when I talk to Diane Vivian, our founder, um, regularly uh, throughout the week, um, she she will say to me, look, you know, around about 85% of the calls she's getting from caregivers who are having to take on the care of their grandchildren, um, it is because of methamphetamine. 
Kate Bundle says typically grandparents will intervene when they see visible signs of abuse or neglect. Often that's bruises, dirty clothes, skin sores and respiratory illness. The children quite often um, are showing signs of neglect that may be sick if they've been exposed to methamphetamine manufacture or they have been around the smoking of pee in the home and and that's happening um, far too often. But it's not just the children's physical health that's been damaged by life with a pee-user parent. Kate Bundle says once the grandparents get them home, they often find the young minds are also in a bad way. We have a lot of children that are suffering from anxiety disorders and attachment disorder, is, um, is I think that's the correct name. And... That manifests in behaviour where they are anxious, They um, some children re- retreat into themselves or some act out and are aggressive and, and quite violent and there are a lot of trigger points along the way that, that grandparents are, uh, are discovering about what these children are finding, that they are, they are fearful of losing sight of their grandparents uh, when they when they start to attach to them. So, you know, a lot of these grandparents um, struggle with putting the children in schools or or preschools because of that anxiety and and not wanting to lose sight of the one person or the two people in their lives that are actually uh, giving them the kind of care that they need. And those are the children who are turning up in growing numbers at the Miriam Centre, Northland's go-to service for abuse counselling. Patsy Henderson, the founder of the Miriam Centre, has helped a lot of troubled children in her 43 years as a therapist. She says in the past the abuse and neglect of children has been linked mainly to alcohol and cannabis, but the centre's now swamped with cases related to methamphetamine use. Patsy Henderson says the sort of trauma she's seeing in the children of pee users is more extreme than in the past. She says pee addicts are more volatile and even less predictable than drunks, and the children soon lose all trust. When you're on pee, you've got the, um, well, with alcohol you get an awful lot of aggression too, of course, but it, um, the unreliability of when they're, when they're clean and when they're not and, and their behaviour's all over the show, and you get a little kid, I had a kid very recently, and this is not uncommon at all, where a boy of about seven, his mother was saying, I'm not using and I never hit you and I don't know. And he, he just looked at her, raised an eyebrow, and he said, you're just sad, Mum. And what he meant by that, not that she was sad, that she was just a piece of rubbish. And another situation where a three-year-old just looked at looked at, at the mother and said, not you, and turned away to get some help from someone else, you know. And that's what you earn. And I think how sad is that, you know. I mean, it's it's the stuff of, of creating the most disturbed child with an unre- unreliable parent, up and down, all over the show, aggressive, sometimes not others, you know. It's very crazy-making. And in Northland schools, disturbed children made crazy by parents on pee are testing the limits of teachers and their resources. At Horohoro Primary School in Whangarei, the principal, Pat Newman, estimates a good 15% of his 400 pupils have had to deal with abuse and neglect at home. These days, he spends most of his working day, and sometimes more, dealing with education and social services, trying to arrange the sort of help they need. Pat Newman says the children exposed to pee at home are often those who will lash out at others, including teachers, without warning, kicking, biting, swearing, even stabbing, and trusting no one. 
He says trying to work with their families is a nightmare. They're on pee most of the time and, and um, either they've got excuses or it's too dangerous to go and talk to them. It's, it's interesting, I, I tend to knock on doors um, a bit. I still see that as a role of a principal. I like to, to see what the circumstances of the family rather than just taking somebody's word. I learned a year or so ago that if I have any inkling that the family is on pee, I won't go near the house. I went to a house one the time that made me that call, having a reasonable discussion with the mother, and within seconds she was flying off the handle. Yelling, um, agitated. Put it like this, I started to look around to see whether there was a knife anywhere with them. There, there wasn't, but, you know, it was at that level, and I'm a fairly big guy. It is that irrationality that you don't know which way they're going to, to go. And for the grandparents who do step in to save the children from homes like that, there's a sense of sadness and resentment that their own children have failed as parents. Kate Bundle says the transition can be a very difficult time all round. There is a sense of grief and loss, um, both in terms of the, the, their son or daughter or son or daughter-in-law who have um, gone off the rails and they are unable to care for the child or children. On the other side of it is the grief and loss of their, their future retirement and, and all the things that they were looking forward to enjoying. Um, when they retired and in the words of one grandmother I spoke to recently she said my life is over you know in terms of what I I wanted for myself it's all about my grandson and you know another grandmother said you know I'm, I'm just stuffed in terms of you know having any dreams or hopes of of traveling or engaging in just you know general socializing with peers this is my eldest grandson. Well, they're actually our great-grandchildren. It's him that's the eldest. That's the little one there. They're watching a movie. I'll find a better one than that. Oh, there. Oh, that's at his birthday party, so mm-hmm. there he is there. Mm-hmm. This Kyle grandmother, whom we'll call Jo, is proud of the two grandsons she and her husband took into their home last year. She says the boy's life with their mother was falling apart when they stepped in. They didn't have very good life skills. Um, They didn't have a routine. They weren't sleeping regularly. They weren't eating regularly. Um, They were a little bit transient. They didn't have any fixed accommodation. The children weren't really aware that the life they were living was not normal. You know, they they become to think that it was a normal life, a normal way to live. Joe says the boys have come a long way in a year, but it's been a hard slog for everyone. She's 63 and still working, and so is her husband, who's 81. Very difficult for Nana and Grandad, um, and very difficult for them getting into a routine, you know, regular meals, regular sleeping patterns, regular homework. That was a major. When they arrived, they were very well below their, their educational level. And the children have worked really hard and we're very proud of what they've achieved in the year, year and a bit that they've been with us. Jo says the hardest thing about taking on her grandchildren was trying to get some financial help from work and income. Since 2009, grandparents have been eligible for the unsupported child benefit at the same rate as foster parents. That's up to about $200 a week per child. They're also eligible for one-off grants when the children arrive and at the start of each school year to cover essentials like bedding and uniforms. But when the Kaior couple applied, they were turned down flat. They followed what they describe as a year of humiliation. And even now, 
Joe can't talk about it easily. We had a very difficult year last year. Uh, we got declined several times, many times, once. And um, then I got really angry because um, I'd never dealt with wins or anything like that myself. My husband had because he's on the super. Anyway, we went in, and this particular person, you could tell right away that they weren't going to do anything. It wasn't until Joe and her husband sought the help of the Northland MP Winston Peters and the Grandparents Raising Grandchildren Trust that work and income relented. They were back paid for the whole year and now receive the unsupported child benefit. Kate Bundle says that's a common scenario and a frustrating one. Grandparents or other whānau applying for the benefit must be able to show there's been a complete family breakdown and the children are likely to be in their care for at least a year. She says in cases where there's been no involvement by child, youth and family, now Oranga Tamariki, that can be difficult to prove. And even when the parents in prison on drug offences, grandparents have been declined help. Grandma might have stepped in to ra- uh, care for the child because mum and dad are facing pee charges and, uh, you know, or they might, might have been sentenced to jail for X number of months. Um, it might be a year, it might be less than a year, but invariably, um, you know, the likelihood is that they're going to get out of jail um, under a year. And so some caregivers have had this scenario happen to them where the work and income staff have said, well, no, there's no guarantee that, um, you know, you're going to have these children for 12 months or more because mum's getting out of prison, you know, before 12 months are up, so the kids will go back to her. And in retrospect, they then grant it after we challenge it, but... A whole year has gone by in those circumstances uh, where the grandmother has really, really struggled with nothing to support that child. Northland's pea plague has never just been confined to the gangs who distribute it and their mates, but it's now infecting people who probably would not have been caught up in it in the past. With one kilogram of meth fetching a profit of $700,000, Asian syndicates working with New Zealand gangs are flooding the market with cheap product. The Salvation Army's bridge program in Northland deals with about 600 addicts a year, most of them referred for drug and alcohol counselling by the courts. The director, Major Sue Hay, says she's seeing more people these days with multiple addictions, meths now added to the former mix of alcohol and cannabis. She says it's freely available and it's reeling in people in all walks of life. It's not just the high-profile gang members that we see, but it is people at every strata of life in in Northland. And addiction can affect anyone. Nobody sets out to become addicted. No one sets out to destroy their lives. But these things are insidious, and they take over when we're least expecting it. And so all sorts of people in our society find themselves trapped, including people in suits. And in fact, that was one of the um, the lovely quotes from one of the women I worked with. She said, I had a wardrobe full of suits. How could I be an addict? For a Whangarei mother, the first inkling that her quiet, lonely son was using meth came when he suddenly acquired a new group of friends. He stayed out late every night. His personal hygiene went to the pack. He quit his job, and in the end he told his parents he'd been smoking pee and he was scared. Not just of the drug, but of his new mates. His parents got him out of town, and his mum says that's when he really crashed. He had a nervous breakdown in this other place. Um, One night he was curled up in a ball in bed, crying his eyes out and saying he just wanted to fit in somehow, but he didn't know 
how we could fit in. It was the worst time in my life um, of, of being a mother. It was hideous. Mm-hmm. I felt so inept. I felt like I couldn't help him like the world that he had inhabited with these friends of his was totally alien. Fear and and nastiness was so anathema to me that I just felt he'd, he'd fallen into a dark hole and I didn't know how to get him out. The Whangarei A mother says her son's doing well now, but he lives in fear of his old meth mates finding him. Sue Hai says people find ways of affording the drug, and they often involve crime, but they always involve deceit. She says it's that that corrodes relationships and destroys the fabric of family life. It can be really expensive, but in Northland there's a lot available free at the moment. It is passed around parties and and unsuspecting mums and partners uh, will just have a, have a puff and uh, suddenly find themselves experiencing something they would never have, have had before and deciding they might want to try that again. And then you become hooked and then you need it and your desperation for it means that you will do the crime or do whatever it takes to then continue to be able to access it. And yet Major Hay says some people can use meth for years without apparent ill effects until suddenly they can't. You have a high-pressure job and you want to keep yourself going and you need extra energy, then then you can do that. If you want to drive a, a truck for long hours, then it gives you that extra boost of energy. But it's the come down where you are so exhausted that you then fall asleep at the wheel because uh, you've run out of energy. Not so long ago, a lot of meth was cooked for the gangs or corporate entrepreneurs in rural corners of the north like Broadwood or Pawarenga. Some still is. But these days, gangs are busy distributing the product brought in bulk from China. Ask around in the far north and they'll tell you a lot of products dumped off the east coast in big sea bags with floats and a GPS device. Then the gangs will send out the recovery team by boat from remote places like Tahapua to track the consignment by GPS and pick it up. The locals theorise that this year's huge meth bust, when half a tonne was found off 90 Mile Beach, was a case of the usual operation going badly wrong when the goods were swept around to the rugged west coast by a storm. We have these things. There's also some of the best people you could ever wish to meet on these streets. Paul Hepper is one of those who escaped the meth trap, more or less intact. He used the drug for seven years. And over time, he watched traditional gang rivalries fade as they learned to share the profits of the pea trade. At one time, there'd be just one gang. Now there's six, six gangs sitting with a Chinaman at the same table. Things like that fire. Yeah. So even they've lost their morals and all that. It was the loss of those boundaries in the meth world, gangs colluding and old men with addicted teenage girlfriends, that bothered Hohepa the most. So when his someone beautiful, his new partner, turned up and challenged his use of the drug, he quit. But he had to move away from his old friends and go home to the far north to do it. And when he recovered and began working in a kohangareo, he soon worked out which children had pee users for parents. They're the children who go to kohanga and sleep. Awake all night, and you can see the, the parents, um, they're drowsy and all that. The, the parents up all night, I suppose, and they, well, they don't get to sleep because the parents are neglecting them as it is, so they just cry all night and just come to, uh, they're coming to Kohonga and actually sleeping, so that was the safest six hours for them. Hohepa says he's been called a glorified babysitter by some parents, but he says he doesn't mind, because at least the kids in his care weren't wandering the streets like many others in small Northland towns. 
The chief executive of the Ngati Kahu Runanga, Anahira Herbert, says that sort of neglect is what alerted her family some years ago to the fact that her niece was using meth. We realised one day, uh, one, my daughter went up and found the kids outside uh, crying, dirty, big, big group of people inside. I wouldn't call it a party. It was a very quiet kind of activity that was going on. They were smoking pee. She, but she was a cook. She was an, a, apparently quite a talented cook. Um, these are things that you, you get educated on that you never wanted to be educated on when, when one of your whanau members becomes involved. So we did an intervention. We took her children off her, gave her a choice of going into um, rehab or you know, uh, having us take her children off her. Uh, we did do that, and she didn't go into rehab, but uh, she managed just on sheer willpower initially to get clean and stay clean for quite a few years, but she relapsed again a few years later, about 10 years later, and again we took her second lot of children off her. Um, she's clean at the moment, but you can never be entirely sure that uh, once they've tasted that particular witch's brew, it seems to be a... Um, like a rubber band is upon them. Last year, Northland Police and Health Authorities put their heads together over the region's methamphetamine crisis. The rise in violent crime, including at least six murders, countless burglaries and many robberies were linked to the drug, and so was the high percentage of people being arrested. Meth addicts have also been creating havoc for medical staff in emergency departments and Whangarei's mental health unit. What the police and health officials have come up with is a first, a joint venture in which police will refer the customers of pea dealers to health services rather than arrest them. And the health providers will beef up their services to those pea users. The government's put $3 million into the project and that'll pay for extra police and extra drug counselling specialists at the Northland District Health Board. The board's director of mental health services, Ian McKenzie, says people desperate to know how to help a family member on meth will very soon have someone to go to. We're developing some roles uh, with community agencies. These will be based in community with non-government organisations called POFANO. And the POFANO are basically a, a navigator into services, a person who's known and has credibility in the community, the ability to work with people while they're either waiting or finding their way into services, and perhaps also meeting with and working with uh, whānau who are distressed around the methamphetamine problem. So it's really to provide a steer, to be a part of the community, but also to have very close uh, linkage and access to, to treatment. The DHB is also adding two more beds to its five-bed detox unit in Dargaville, which should reduce the wait time of six weeks. And it's about to begin drug testing people who show up in its emergency department showing signs of drug abuse to offer them help. Ian McKenzie says meth addicts generally ask for help when they've been using for seven to ten years, when their teeth are falling out and they've lost their families. He says the new harm reduction program aims to generate more early interventions and defeat the meth trade by reducing demand. Because, as the police have said, it's not a problem they'll ever arrest their way out of. Criminalising all of the users in Northland would both block up the criminal justice system and also not result in treatment. So I guess the partnership that we that we anticipate or that we're forming now gives us the opportunity to get people into treatment and get them off methamphetamine and on with their lives. 
we have ads going out. We are hopeful that we will have some staff in place in uh, July and we're doing that to coordinate with the police so that they have their police uh, resources uh, in place in July so that we can begin treatment aligned to the police work so that we're not getting out of kilter and, and upsetting the demand or access to services. If you're doing a project like this, there'd be nothing worse than promoting the availability of services but not having them available. Sue Hay, director of the Bridge Programme, says the timing of interventions in meth addiction is critical. There's a point in the addiction journey where people move from uh, resistance to starting to understand they might have an issue. And it's about getting that timing right. So if a person is still in that resistance phase, they are very unlikely to cooperate and come into treatment. But if they're starting to get an inkling that their life is unravelling, they might be open to some input into experiencing what a treatment agency has to offer. It might be domestic violence. It might be that uh, they've run out of food uh, for the kids. They're struggling to pay the bills. There's somebody on their doorstep demanding payment. And there are people starting to hang around the family that are not the kind of people that they want their kids to be associating with. Margaret, the Whangarei woman who's just taken in her two grandchildren, says that penny still hasn't dropped for her addicted daughter. She says to me, I'm sick of everybody blaming the pee. I said to her, well, what is it then? Well, what is it then if it's not that? You know, but this is how delusional. You can't get through to people like that when they think like that because I've said that to her that you need to maybe go get professional help and go away for a while. And that was her answer to me. I'm sick of everybody blaming the pee. Sue Hay says even hardened addicts can be helped when they're ready. She says the Salvation Army's programme to get mongrel mob members off meth has had a 90% success rate. And she believes the Northland Meth Harm Reduction Project, with its new collaborative approach, has a very good chance of success. I believe that there are a lot of people in Northland working towards uh, turning this around and that it's possible for Northland to address this as we engage family, whānau and whole communities. But whole communities need to step up. Uh, Fano need to find leaders amongst themselves to step up and we need to have the courage to say it's not good enough and we want to see things um, become different. I'm Lois Williams and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radioNZ.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at InsightRNZ. That programme was produced by me, Teresa Cowie, with technical production from William Saunders. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, head to rnz.co.nz slash insight or listen, rate, review and subscribe to Insight on iTunes. Ka kite anō.